please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. I will be reading verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be, be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you meet us here in this place? And would you speak to us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. On a regular week, on a regular Tuesday night, at a regular small group meeting, this simple question plunges everyone seated at the table into deep thought, reflection, and even a tinge of sadness. Who is your best friend? Seemingly simple question, uh, a question that takes me back to the first week of first grade where I met my first best friend. Uh, I was the shy kid. I remember sitting alone on the bus, um, but a couple stops after mine, this boy named John asks if he can sit next to me. And then he just goes right into the next question. Hey, can we be friends? And I say yes to both questions. And this establishes a decades-long friendship. The question takes me back to our kindergarten Sunday school class at church, and I think of friends that I still consider dear to this day. Who is your best friend? A simple question. But the simplicity almost magnifies the pain of not being able to formulate an answer. On this regular Tuesday night small group meeting, not one person has an answer. Oh dear, I think to myself, did I just open a can of worms or possible wound? Or is this indicative of a larger phenomenon in our culture, among our people? Fast forward several months, I'm sitting in the dining room around the same table again, and as I talk to a friend about life and relationships in particular, this person shares this with me. Yeah, if I get married, I don't even know who my best man would be. And my mind flashes back to that Tuesday night small group meeting where I, was, where I asked, who is your best friend? And at this point, I know that this is a symptom that's of something that's happening in our culture among our people. Before the global pandemic that we are still emerging from, we were already suffering from another epidemic that COVID only exacerbated. 
In 2017, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, declared this a public health epidemic. Loneliness. And it's so bad that he says that it's on par with the opioid epidemic and obesity in this country. According to an article published just last year by the New York Times, we are suffering heavily from the effects of our quickening pace of life, the increasing presence of and dependence on technology and social media, as well as the constant quest for efficiency and convenience. All this, according to Dr. Murphy, leaves zero space and zero mental emotional capacity for real relationship. So is it any wonder that the question, who's your best friend, is so hard to answer for so many people? And unfortunately, the effects of this loneliness epidemic do not stop there. The article goes on to state, being lonely, like other forms of stress, increases the risk of emotional disorders like depression, anxiety, substance abuse. Less obviously, it also puts people at a greater risk of physical ailments that seem unrelated, like heart disease, cancer, stroke, hypertension, dementia, and premature death. In lab experience, experiments, lonely people who were exposed to a cold virus were more likely to develop symptoms than people who were not lonely. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Encouraging Day Church. Um, it'll turn around, I promise. A Harvard study done back in 2021 found that 61% of young adults experience loneliness. That's six out of 10 people in this room. While this epidemic is felt all over our world, I think our small community right here in this church is a case study. A majority of us sitting here in this place have suffered or are currently suffering from loneliness, even as you sit next to people or even as you hang out and spend time in groups. And you know, one of, the, one of the great things that we get to witness both in our community and in the world around us is that we are trying to do something about it. You know, all of these stats on about loneliness and disconnectedness, they're not new to us. We know something is lacking. And so we try, you know, we put our best foot forward and we try to invest more of ourselves, more of our time into relationships and friendships. You know, we realize that relationships take work and so we try to put in the work. But as we try and we try, sooner or later we reach the limits that are our social batteries and we're drained. You know, relationship and community are, are tiring a lot of the times. They require energy. And it gets really messy. And we also come face to face with the fact that people can just be really hard to love. And a conflict comes, and it's quick to sour or hinder any relational efforts. And for many of us, conflict resolution is still a big area of growth. Along the same vein, we find that as we try to foster deeper relationship, as we take steps of vulnerability, others might not reciprocate or take the same steps. And that's just really frustrating. I mean, like, have you ever been that one person who shares something really personal and vulnerable in like a small group or something, hoping that others will do the same, except they don't? I mean, I've been there. And so as we pour in only to get little to no return, as we tire ourselves out trying to deepen relationships, as we invest in community only to feel exhausted, as we begin to even harbor seeds of, of bitterness through unresolved conflict, we find that these are merely symptomatic of this simple truth. 
we cannot give what we do not have. We cannot give to others what we ourselves do not possess. I cannot love others, my wife, my daughter, my family, my friends, let alone my enemies, if I do not regularly live in and receive love. I cannot be a presence of peace in an anxious world if I myself am not a person of peace. We cannot love and give from a place of emptiness. And we can try really hard, and, and trying is not bad, but ultimately we will reach our limits. Now, our efforts towards relationship that end up leaving us more tired than fulfilled are indicative of this. We are limited. Our energy is limited. Our patience is limited. Our compassion is limited. And ultimately, our love is limited. Some have greater limits than others, but in the end, we are human. We have limits. Now, over the past five weeks, we've been journal, journal, not journaling, I've been journaling, we've been journeying through our Abide series on being aware of, experiencing, and connecting with God in the ordinariness of our days, which culminated in our, our rule of life teaching just last week, which we defined as a way and system of living that orients us towards our goals, values, and desires. For a follower of Jesus, it's a way and system of living that orders our lives around Jesus as our center. So the question you might be asking right now is, is where does this all intersect? You know, where does lonely, what does loneliness have to do with my rule of life and vice versa? You know, when we, when we think rule of life, more often than not, we think personal practices, like alone time with God, personal habits, self-care. When we think monks and monastic practices, which is where the concept of a rule of life originates, we think secluded, cloistered men in robes and funny haircuts, living apart from people in society. And we might even think that they choose lifestyles of solitude and loneliness merely for the sake of solitude and loneliness, merely for the sake of getting away. And that's partially true in a way, but it's not exactly the whole point. It's not the whole picture. In fact, you could argue that monks enjoy more community far more deeply than we do. For example, like the early church in Acts, Benedictine monks share all possessions in common. And while we might think that monks do nothing but pray, and they do pray a lot, rhythms of work and play are also part of monastic life. But the important thing that I want to highlight is that, contrary to our preconceived notions, historically, monastic orders always benefited and blessed the surrounding people, towns, and communities. Theologian and historian Gerald Sitzer writes this, that in the Middle Ages, monasteries played a dominant role in the culture. Towns grew up around them, which explains why even today, if you visit Europe, monasteries, or at least their ruins, sit at the center of many European cities. Monks became masters of skilled trades. They established schools to teach people to read and write and deployed missionaries. And so in short, monasteries helped to preserve and spread some of the better aspects of Western civilization. Pastor and author Ken Shigematsu writes, contrary to the popular assumptions about monks and nuns, Celtic monasteries did not withdraw from society to spend time alone, isolated from the world. Instead, they built their monasteries close to settlements on well-known hilltops or on islands near established sea lanes so that they could practically demonstrate the hospitality of Christ. Monasteries were not just places of prayer and worship. They also served as hotels, emergency shelters, hospitals, 
libraries, universities, centers for the arts, and mission-sending bases. This is why so many hospitals have saint in front of the title. These spiritual pilgrims were not just concerned for their own spiritual growth. They were a force for justice and community transformation. And this takes us back to a core belief we hold in this community. Our spiritual formation, us becoming more like Jesus, must always bless those around us. As Robert Mulholland puts it, our spiritual formation is always for the sake of others. Or put another way, the best, give, the best gift you can give to someone else is your transforming self. And suddenly, our rule of life has to do, has everything to do with relationship, community, social change and justice, and of course, our loneliness epidemic. So we wrap up our teaching series today with less of a how sermon. For that, please go back and check out the first five teachings on our podcast. And we end with more of a why sermon. Why rule of life? Why abide? Pastor and author Pete Gazzara writes, A rule of life is a call to order our entire life in such a way that the love of Christ comes before all else. And in doing so, the very quality of our lives holds the possibility of being transformed into a gift to our families, friends, coworkers, and communities. Jump back with me into John 15. I'm going to pick it up at verse 9 here. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So it just so happens that the main goal of the Christian life, the goal of a life of abiding in Jesus, is love. It's to enjoy his love for us and to become people of love. And so logically speaking, if we are not abiding in that love, we are just trying to love from an, with an empty tank. To become people of love, people with the capacity to love deeply and powerfully, we must center ourselves on the source of love. We must abide in Jesus. We must abide in his love. As John later writes, we love because he first loved us. So our series started with a teaching titled Holy Present, that's W-H, Holy. Today's teaching centers on this theme. The fact that being holy and totally present with Jesus allows us to be a holy presence to the people, the community, and the world around us. So as I said earlier, trying will only get us so far. Trying really hard to love and to invest in a relationship only gets us so far, because we're human. And we know that by experience. Willpower will only get you so far. Like, who here has ever struggled with an addiction? You know, either to substances or pornography, or even things like approval and status. Like, have you ever tried to stop? How successful were you by your own effort? And like, I, I don't ask this to heap shame at all, but like, how many times did you fail? 
Let me be the first to tell you. I have tried and failed so many times to kick addictions in the past and felt so discouraged that I almost felt like, man, why even try anymore? Try, fail, and then ask why bother. You know, and then, and then sink back into the same addiction. Like a terrible cycle. So is there hope? Can we actually change? Can we actually become people of love? People who live in Christ's love, who enjoy his love, and who then have love to give. Can we actually become people of peace? People who exude a serenity, even in the midst of life's chaotic moments. How does one become more and more like Jesus? Do we do it by trying really hard? I mean, I'm sure many of us have tried. How is it going? Is it sustainable? Are you tired? According to pastor and writer John Ortberg, we become more like Jesus. We grow in Christ-likeness, not necessarily by trying hard, but rather by training hard. Let me give you an example. If, oh man, Sam's not here. If I want to sit down with Sam and totally crush him at chess, can I simply try really hard? Like, can I go to battle with him one day with little knowledge of strategies and little practice and then just beat him and win simply just by like, I'm going to put my mind to this. I'm going to try really hard. I think I can do this. Would that work? And Aaron can tell me. The answer is probably no, right? Or how about a more classic example? If I want to be a marathon runner, which is a life goal of mine sometime, if I want to be a marathon runner, can I simply sign up for the soonest marathon, go shopping with Kevin, buy the best Nikes, heap a lot of positive self-talk on myself, and then simply just go out there and try really hard to, to run 26.2 miles? I mean, that's a resounding no. I'll probably destroy my knees before I'm even halfway. And so similarly, I simply cannot go out and try to love and expect it to go well and be sustainable because deep down, I am just not a person of love yet. For those of us who've been in romantic relationships, if you're doing it right, it's actually one big purging process. Before we can really love our partner well, we usually have to come to grips with how selfish and how unloving we are first. I cannot be a non-anxious presence to someone else if I myself do not have peace within me. I just can't try to conjure up peace, no matter what self-help mantra I repeat to myself. And ultimately, I cannot be a Christ-like presence merely by saying, you know what, it's a new day, I'm going to try really hard to be like Jesus today. Do I spend time with him regularly? No, I don't really have time for that. Do I know him? I mean, I know certain things about him. But I'm going to give Christ-likeness a really good effort today. I think it's going to go well. I mean, how many of us have tried that and failed more than succeeded? Let's just be real. Now, should we try? Should we not try? Yes, trying is good. But trying on its own will not work. Here's what will work. Training. And there's a difference. Let's go back to the Sam example. If I want to have a chance of beating Sam at chess, I can't simply try really, really hard. But I can start 
a training regimen. Maybe I can train with Aaron. I have to structure my life around reading chess strategy books, watching and analyzing matches, practicing against the computer and other friends. All of these things, this rule of life builds me up and forms me into the person who stands a chance against the almighty Sam. If I want to run a marathon, I have to set up a smart training program. I have to start with running two miles, three miles, four miles, and then longer runs on the weekend, working up towards the 26.2 miles. I had to factor into my rule of life, stretching, maybe some strength work. I had to be wise with my eating and sleeping habits to allow my body time to, uh, to, to recover, to condition itself, to build itself up. All of these things taken together, this training regimen, forms my body and my mind into a machine that can then run a marathon without getting injured. It's the difference between trying and training. Becoming more and more like Jesus works the same way. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He later says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And before that, in John chapter five, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. All that he does comes out of a life of abiding in the father. This is Jesus himself. And so we, we cannot simply just decide to become more Christ-like. If it were that easy, Jesus would have just said, hey, just try to be more like me, okay? It's not that hard. Do your best, try hard, bear fruit for my kingdom. If it were that simple, we would not have even needed a whole teaching series on this. Instead of saying, abide in my love, Jesus might have just said, hey, try to be more loving, all right? And if we could just simply try hard to do this, to be Christ-like, to be more loving, to be a presence of peace, we wouldn't really need a rule of life or even the help of the Holy Spirit. We could do it by our own willpower and effort, which is usually the path to self-righteousness, which most definitely is not a fruit of the Spirit. And so, to become more and more like Jesus, we need a training plan. We need a rule of life, which you could just redefine as a training plan for growing in Christ-likeness. The only way to become more like Jesus is to order our lives around being with Jesus. There is just no other way. This is why the vision for our lives here in our True North community is this, leading internal lives pointed by Jesus in order to lead external lives that point to Jesus. Internal change does not happen through mere effort. If it were that easy, we would not need friends, mentors, therapists, pastors, I'd be out of a job, or community. We wouldn't even need Jesus. But internal change must happen. And that's a really good thing. One of the most wonderful things about living a life of constantly abiding in Jesus, constantly being with him, is that we get to be the ones to enjoy the fruit first. We ourselves get to enjoy the first fruits of transformation. The beauty is it starts in us. We are blessed and then we bless others. When we lead a life of abiding, when we live by a rule centered on Jesus, 
The first fruits are the experience of and the enjoyment of Jesus. And out of this flows love for God and for others. We've been talking a lot about practices that cultivate awareness of God and the ability to begin to see and to hear him. We start with practices that orient us, that turn our ears, minds, and hearts toward him. Things like prayer, slow reading of scripture, journaling. This is our training regimen. But over time, an internal shift starts to happen. What starts as practices geared towards awareness start to become a spirit of awareness in us. I'll give you an example. I spent a long time building these habits in my life because, as you all know, it's just really easy to drop good habits. So I spent a long time building these habits into my life rhythm. But then we had a baby, a very complicated baby, and now my routine, my rule, is just, has just been thrown up in the air. It's been totally exploded. But by the grace of God, even if I can't sit down for my usual quiet time in the morning with my cup of coffee and my journal and my Bible, the months and years I spent cultivating awareness have now become a spirit of awareness. God isn't like, oh, you can't stick to your rule anymore? I'm leaving. No. God meets us. God meets me where I am. He's a gracious God. And so even if I can't sit down in silence and solitude, I get to be with God as I feed Phoebe, as I change her diapers. When we structure our lives around growing in awareness of God, the Holy Spirit meets us where we are and cultivates in us a God awareness. When we practice Sabbath, it starts off as being this one day of rest and delight in God, one day a week. And then we had to soldier through the next six weekdays until the next Sabbath. But after week after week, month after month of practicing Sabbath and committing to keeping it holy, an internal shift begins to happen. What starts as a day of rest that comes every seven days grows and blossoms into a spirit of rest in us. Friends, this is how we become people of peace. Jesus says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It's a well-known fact that for children who grow up in a house that is full of love, full of encouragement, super nurturing, they generally grow up to find it easier to be loving, encouraging, and nurturing towards others and their own children. And so you could say that they are growing up abiding in the love of their parents, and then that becomes a part of who they are. Conversely, people who grow up in abusive households more often than not grow up to perpetuate cycles of abuse. Generational sin is real. Now imagine... Imagine if we spent our days abiding in the love of Jesus. Every day, throughout the day, we spent time just, just drinking in the love of God. When we spend time in prayer, when we practice gratitude and thanksgiving, we are rehearsing the love and the faithfulness of God. We are actively calling to mind his grace 
When we read scripture, we're reading the grand story of his love for us. When we sing worship songs, we proclaim his love over us. When we enjoy friends, community, good food, life-giving play, we are enjoying the gifts of a loving father. Just imagine the people we will grow to become if this is our daily diet. For breakfast, I think I'll abide in the love of Christ. For lunch, I think I'll abide in his love. For dinner, before bed, I think I'll abide in the love of Jesus. If this is our life, if we abide in him, if we abide in his love, how could we not become people of love who can finally love others from a place of fullness? Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. At the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, he writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is faithful when we order our lives around being with him, God will meet us where we are. And he will do good, deep, transformative work in us. When we abide in Christ, we do become more like Christ. This is the only way. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And then it gets better. Notice what he says at the end of the passage. Notice that Jesus never says, do these things so you can be a good Christian or just good people. He doesn't say, do these things so that your reward will be great. You can go to heaven or so that I'll love you more. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And friends, when Jesus is talking about his joy, Jesus was a person of joy. He was the most joyful person. Remember how we're always quoting Ignatius of Loyola when he says that sin is essentially mistrusting that what God wants for us is only our deepest happiness? Here, Jesus is saying, do these things, live this way, abide in me, structure a way and system of living your rule around me so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. As it turns out, what God wants for us is only our deepest joy. As it turns out, our joy begins simply with being with Jesus. Sam walks in right after all the Sam stories. Dang it. But man, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm so glad that being a Christian is actually pretty simple. Be with Jesus. That's kind of the whole point. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Through these examples that we've been going through, notice how the fruits that have been highlighted are love, joy, peace, 
which happened to be the first three fruits of the Spirit, as Paul writes in Galatians. When I was a kid, I used to think that like, really godly people were people who prayed for a really long time, or they just did a lot of stuff in church. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, and I'm definitely not here to cast judgment on anyone's hearts or intentions, and I can't say what motivated all their service, but now, more and more, I am seeing that people who are really godly are people who just exude love, joy, and peace. This is evident in their character, just their general vibe, and their acts of service. Love and, and showing love are just merely extensions of their inner character. Joy is just their general disposition. And peace is something that can be found in the most chaotic or darkest of times. And more often than not, this actually flows out of a life spent with Jesus. A life of, of prayer and abiding. And then it flows into acts of service. And when I see this, I think, wow, life must be really good with Jesus. I want to end with this. Backtrack with me to John chapter 14. And we'll just read verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Do you ever wonder what the disciples must have been thinking when Jesus said that? Like, Jesus, you do some pretty wild stuff. How could we ever? And how could we ever do greater things? But then, if you think about it, it comes true. For the disciples, spending three years living, traveling, and working with Jesus, three years abiding with Jesus, that changes everything. It changes them deeply, and they go on to literally change the world. The gospel spreads, miracles perform, people are healed, demons are cast out, and souls are saved. They do go on to do greater things, because they are many. They spent time with Jesus and essentially became little Jesuses. And then those little Jesuses went on, made disciples, and then there were more little Jesuses. And throughout the book of Acts, throughout the rest of the New Testament, throughout the years of the early church, the first monastic orders, the desert fathers and mothers, and all the way up to today, our little church here, little Jesuses are being made and discipled. Greater things. People who have been with God People who spend time with God tend to go on to make some pretty big waves in their communities and the world. Even before the disciples, Moses goes up to the mountain to be with God and he comes down and his face is literally glowing. And then before that, out of his time with God, he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Before Moses, Jacob wrestled with God and was left forever changed. Before Jacob, Abraham spent time walking with God. He made a covenant with God, and then history was forever changed. As fellow sons and daughters saved by Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, we are living proof of that. And so what can come from spending time with Jesus and doing life with him? 
Well, apparently, as history shows, the world can be changed. Throughout history, every person who has been a part of a big kingdom move, whether that be a revival or a big moment of renewal, they first led a life of abiding. From Daniel in Babylon, to the apostles throughout the New Testament, to Martin Luther in Germany during the Reformation, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights Movement, to Mother Teresa, to Billy Graham, and the list goes on. It all starts with a life of abiding. But the question I leave you with, friends, is this. What might come out of your time with Jesus? What might come out of your life spent with Jesus? What deep healing and transformation might take place inside your heart? What new love, joy, and peace might be waiting on the other side of that for you? Maybe a step out of loneliness and into loving relationship. Maybe a step out of inner darkness and depression and towards peace and the willingness to receive help and therapy. Maybe a step away from self-hate and a step towards accepting the love that God pours out freely. And out of this inner change, how might you bring new love into your relationships and communities? What is just waiting to be unleashed? Out of this inner change, how might you be a presence of love, joy, and peace, and a force for good change, for justice and salvation for the lost in this world. This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which marks the start of the Lenten season, the 40 days leading up to Easter, when we practice repentance, reflect upon our humanity, our mortality, and our limits. Not to feel bad about ourselves, but to ultimately prepare ourselves to remember the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus and then to celebrate his resurrection. Lent is a time of recentering, reorienting. And so it's a great time to either establish or to reestablish a rule of life, a way and system of abiding with Jesus. And maybe that just starts with adding a moment of prayer into your day, or making time to rest, or spending more time in Scripture. Or if you already live by a Christ-centered rule, maybe for you it's, it's a time of adjustment and retailoring your rule, depending on your life season. But as we do so, just think about this. What might something as small as a simple daily prayer rhythm lead to? What might a simple little Bible reading schedule lead to? What could it possibly be the seed for? What might openness and vulnerability before God and in community lead to? Could these little things lead to something far greater than we ever imagined or thought possible? Just think of the possibilities, my friends. Dream big, because our God is a big God. And start small, because our God is a gracious God. Abide, abide, abide. That is where it all starts. A simple stepping stone into a world of endless possibility and new life to the full. Let's stand and pray.
Father, we thank you that when you boil it all down, what you're calling us to, what you're inviting us into, is really just relationship with you. It's always been about relationship with you. We thank you that this, this life that you beckon us into is just a life of being with you. And so, Lord, would you help us to see the simplicity of that invitation, the beauty of that invitation, the grace in that invitation, And would you just lead us to say yes? Would you lead us to simply be with you? Maybe that just starts with spending five minutes before bed with you, and then an evening with you, and then maybe we'll, we'll go to work with you, and then maybe we'll wake up and spend the morning with you. But Lord, we pray that you would plant seeds in our hearts. And we pray that you would bring growth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.